Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And on this week's show, Jasmine will be joined by David Castleman, who is the founder of Ecoflix, which you are going to be amazed to find out about. It's a not-for-profit global media service streaming worldwide on all forms of media, and that it's dedicated to saving animals and the planet. Yeah, I love when I find out about projects that are doing new and interesting things and the way that David and his nonprofit are approaching changing the world for animals by way of media is unique and it's super cool. And he's just really plugged in. And I I really enjoyed this chat very much. I also really enjoyed our, our flock bonus segment, which was another chat with David Castleman. So if you are a flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the flock Facebook group. And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, of course, if you're a flock member, please join us for our flock first Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern. And we have such great conversations. And we usually have a guest, usually somebody who's been on the podcast. And 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 I just love those conversations about, about everything under the sun. So if you're a member of the flock, check out the flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And you can also set up one-on-one conversations with Jasmine. Yeah, I look forward to hearing from you. By the way, we've like low-key been chatting at our henhouse about moving away from Facebook for both the flock group and our main page. I mean, I think we would still leave them there, but for the flock group specifically, we're thinking about moving to Mighty Networks. So nothing is final yet, but it, it's basically an app and it it would be a lot easier to engage. And Facebook is just becoming so hideous and th- that I, I think this offers a lot more benefits. And And if we do that, we might have some more perks coming for you flock members. So just, you know, putting a pin in this for now, but that sounds exciting. I don't know anything about it. This is, uh, this is totally your baby. So, (laughs) so I'll be excited to hear. I've been working with Vicky on it. Vicky's been helping us out tremendously at our hen house since Jen is on maternity and she did have her baby. Uh, she sent us a photo of the baby in a vegan onesie, obviously. And I was like, this is our youngest flock member and our hen house intern potentially. We'll wait for his until he is like he three is months super, old. super cute, though, you know, I, I guess a lot of babies are, but he's especially cute. And his name is Joseph. Is. Yes. And you love that name. So I do love that name. Yeah. By the way, how are you feeling? Last week you mentioned that you had COVID. Yeah. Well, as you know, uh, I'm feeling much better. I got off very, very easy. Uh, I was kind of sick for one day, like felt like I was really coming down with something. Then I was just mildly sick for two days and then I was fine. So yeah, I was very lucky. I, you know, I'm still a little scared of long COVID because sometimes it doesn't set in right away, but let's not, let's not even talk about that. Uh, yeah, for, for having been terrified for two and a half years, it, I mean, there's a number of reasons it turned out to be nothing, <laughs> but I was really relieved that I got, I was very, very lucky. So Good. I'm so glad you're wanna, better. I did want to mention, since you were mentioning Facebook to the flock that I'm really trying to post articles, both to the Facebook page in general and the, the flock group. So mm-hmm. if Wait you're till we have mighty networks, you're going to love it for posting. I will. Right. Yeah, you're going to love it. 
I, I mean, I'm really trying to do that. And I, it's a way for me to keep up on some news. And I hope it's a way for you guys to keep up on some news. So just to let you know. So you're all better. You are allowed to enter the world again with a mask on, obviously, which we were doing anyway. So you're, you're, we are the well, only people I know who, who wear, wear masks. masks. Yeah. I don't like, I don't get it, but actually, whatever. I, I was in Buffalo the other day and I couldn't find anything to eat because it was just like a weird time. And I found, I was specifically looking for outdoor patios that you just made me think of it because I'm trying to only eat at places with outdoor patios. And I found a German restaurant and they had a vegan schnitzel on the menu. Like that is just the most random thing to yeah. uh, to just sort of come by when looking for, when Googling, you know, restaurants with patios. So very exciting to get a vegan schnitzel in Buffalo. From what you said about it, it was kind of an umpapa kind of style. Yes, like exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was I love so that. Cool. I have to go. I want to go. Yeah. Well, now that you're fully recovered, so you're, are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you kind of functioning as usual? I, I, I am functioning fine. I feel great. I did sleep like crap last night. I don't know. I think it's because I ate too late. I'm that old that if I eat too late, I can't sleep like, oh God, people don't get old. There's just nothing, there's just nothing to it. First of all, you're really not old. But secondly, I think people should get old. Actually, I really am old, but uh, right, moving anyway. on. So I was up in the middle of the night. Okay, so I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and I try and listen to a sleep story on Calm. Do you do things like that when you can't sleep? Yes. Sometimes I try to listen to a sleep story on Calm. Last night I was like, oh, I just, like I was so wide awake and they, you know, I was just like, I'll just listen to five of them and they're stupid. And, you know, they're supposed to be kind of stupid, like because they're supposed to kind of lull you to sleep. Uh, so, my other choice is to listen to a podcast, but as you can imagine, it's not great to listen to just any podcast because they're, you know, like if it's politics or something, I'll just get like, who wants to listen to that in the middle of the night? So I listened to this, this podcast It's from the BBC. I think it's called In Our Time. And each week they do like a deep dive with a bunch of academics on some incredibly obscure uh, subject. One week it was crocodiles. The next week it was the Chinese Revolution. The, like it's historical or philosophical or or biological. Anyway, this one was on Peter Kropotkin, and I had never heard. I'm I'm really. I mean, I guess the name sounds vaguely familiar, but I had no idea who Peter Kropotkin was. So I'm listening to this podcast, and he was an anarchist. He was a prince actually in Russia. And he went totally to the other side of the spectrum and, and like an anarchist writer and, and thinker. And he sounded like a really, really interesting, good person. Uh, also super, super smart. He spoke six languages, like whatever. And so he devised the, the concept of mutual aid that, that instead of governments, we should be, you know, this is really dumbing it down. But we should be relying on each other, that people should be able to rely on each other for help when they need it. So I'm listening and they're talking about how he developed this theory. It was on when he went to Siberia. He didn't, he wasn't forced to go to Siberia. He was just there for some reason. And he, he was viewing a lot of animals. Uh, and he said that he expected, because he had studied Darwin, that the animals would be, you know, right, na raw nature, tooth and claw, or whatever the expression is, like they would be totally at each other. And his observations were that the uh, animals were incredibly cooperative, that they took care of each other, that 
they seem to have like a lot of empathy for each other and and they work together. I mean, at least animals of the same species, I guess he was talking about. And he was astounded. And this is like how what started him thinking about how that's how people should be. There's nothing like unnatural about it. It's apparently how nature works. And I was just like, what? Why have I never heard of this guy? Yeah. This is so good. I actually, I woke up this morning and I, I reserved a book um, of his writings on, on, on the library, which I will proceed not to read, I admit, but you know, probably I'll read a little bit of it. And um, I was just, and so in the middle of the night, um, and, and I had to turn the light on for some reason, and I picked up my phone, which is you're not supposed to do. And I checked Instagram. And the first post I saw was from the Rochester Mutual Aid Society. Oh my God, that's so freaky. It's so spooky. Yeah, that I hate that shit. Ugh. I think it was a sign. Uh, so of anyway, what? you probably, everybody out there has probably heard of him and read him in college or whatever. I'm just behind the times. He developed his whole theory and all of his writings, starting with his observation of animals. I mean, there were obviously a lot of other things too, but mm. wow. Yeah, that is, that's super interesting. I want to hear that. Will you send me that podcast episode link? Yes. Okay. Maybe we let's also put it in the show notes. Yeah, that's a good idea. But it's also called in our in our time, okay. in our time, or in our times. But very, uh, very cool. yeah. And if you're you know if you can't sleep at night, it's great for putting you to sleep. The one on fungi or fungi or fungi, which they pronounced it all three ways, I think, during the program, was was particularly good. Like you just never know what you're going to get. Yeah. Well, I can relate to not knowing what you're going to get because after more was also cleared and in, in and allowed to be around other people again after she more is your wife of course yeah from covid she recovered from covid so mike kaplan mike spelled myq came to town because he was performing in rochester and buffalo so mike is a stand-up comedian if you've listened to our henhouse for a while you've heard him twice or so uh most recently i think last year and i've also been on his podcast he has a few and he always he he was on last comic standing you know he did pretty well on it he was one of the few remaining people standing and then he sat down <laughs> um i'll leave the jokes to him anyway so he oh my god i didn't realize that was a joke <laughs> it was really bad but he's been he stayed with us in our you know finished attic up there and we got to see him you me and more got to see him masked we were the only people on this past weekend and it was so fun and so funny and he did some vegan jokes and he magically is able to do vegan jokes in a way that other people would also find it funny but it's kind of like a in a haha you should go vegan i tricked you kind of way yeah like and and not he doesn't like poke fun at his fellow vegans right. like he he kind of pokes fun at the meat eaters and it's still i was really listening closely and he got like totally authentic laughs yeah like he at the middle i don't want to quote him because i'll ruin it but i'll quote him anyway the, <laughs> in, in about the middle of the show he he was like uh i'm vegan see how long it took me to tell you <laughs> and i i thought that was very funny and then he started talking about his veganism but it was great like i i highly recommend it you know 
follow Mike Kaplan and go see him when he comes near you. He he travels very frequently doing comedy. And also you can listen to him on our hen house as well. I, I did ask him if he wanted, if he would do all of his vegan jokes in a set for our hen house. And he said, yes, I would love that. Yeah, I would too. So maybe we'll follow up with that. Uh, anyway, before we get to the interview with David Castleman switching gears, I want to make sure that we talk about this, like, I think pretty big news story and we will link to it in the show notes as well. This this one, of course, it's been covered in a lot of places, but we're reporting specifically on the New York Times article and it's called Ringling Circus is Returning. Lions, Tigers, and Dumbo are not. Yeah, I, you know, I'm not sure this made that big a splash in the news, but for me personally, it was just overwhelming news because if, you know, I'm sure there are many out there who have been doing this for a while and remember the unbelievable level of feuding between the animal rights movement and Ringling Brothers Circus and how horrible the animals were treated and how particularly focused on the elephants, uh, though certainly not exclusively, and and how there was a big lawsuit and it ended up being unsuccessful in this incredibly unfair situation. And then, and then animal rights groups got like sued by, by Ringling for having brought the lawsuit and, and allegedly lying. And it, so it was horrible and, and they were successful and they got all this money. It was just a nightmare of a situation. And, but you know, like it's just, to me, it's just such a symbolic effort because you wait them out long enough and, you know, after a while, even though they won their lawsuit, they stopped using elephants. And then not that long after that, they stopped using other, dragging other animals across the country in their godforsaken trains and buses or whatever. And, and I go so far back. I can remember, I'm sure I've told this story, but forgive me, standing outside the Lincoln Tunnel in Manhattan the night I met my friend, Amy Trukinski, it was years, years, years ago. There were a whole lot of circus fans because that's a, they used to parade the, the, the circus across 34th Street to go to uh, Madison Square Garden. And there were all these circus fans and a few animal rights activists. And, and then we were running. That's when I could run. With the elephants, they move really fast and, and yelling, yelling. We were yelling, where's Kenny? Which is one of their baby elephants who had recently died. Frequently, they're male elephants who are not great performance and are difficult to, to handle. When they were born, they would somehow mysteriously die. It was just so horrible, these poor elephants. And now it doesn't seem that long ago. Yeah. I remember, I mean, this was much, much more recently doing the big protest outside of the Brooklyn What's right. that place called in Brooklyn? Just that big, that <laughs> I don't know, giant center. I know what you mean. The big giant arena Barclays, in Brooklyn. Barclays, Barclays, Barclays. It doesn't feel that well. Maybe, maybe I'm commenting more on my age. I don't know, but you know, like it, we thought we would never win this, and and now, and I started worrying, like because they did not give away their elephants at the time. They started this stupid center in Florida, uh, where they were holding on to them. To, to God knows what. And I had not realized this, but I looked it up and apparently two years ago, two people bought the elephants and sent them to sanctuary. I don't know how legit it is. It sounds extremely legit, but you know, I'm not swearing to that. I don't know anything about them, but I had not even heard that, that they, you know, they must've known two years ago that they were giving up and they could never bring these elephants back on the road, that that, that, that 
had closed down for them. So yeah, I don't know whether I would go to the circus at this point. A, I did go to the circus when I was a kid, so there's something nostalgic about it. But B, it kind of got really tainted because I hated them so much for so long. And C, circus kind of weird anyway. I don't know whether I'd want to go. What are you? What about you? Well, remember we saw Cirque du Soleil once. I think maybe in Las Vegas. Or oh something. yeah, I have scars on my arm. Oh, from you, from you <laughs> grabbing it so hard in terror. I, like you do not want to watch people in danger, do you? I like feel like I'm going to be there in the audience the day that they fall. And I can't, everyone now knows how like, how nuts I am, but I can't like get it out of my head enough to enjoy it. (laughs) Like, I'm just like, ah, she's going to fall. Ah, he looks like a nice guy. He's going to fall. Well, I mean, Cirque du Soleil, I mean, it's insane. Like what they do, like, it's just insane. I mean, and that is the whole goal. It's just that apparently some people enjoy that. I just don't think, I really don't, it, it, it really wouldn't be the kind of thing I would enjoy. But I'm I'm thrilled by this new turn of events. I also think it's funny how they blame, they, they specifically said that this is not happening because of the pressure applied by animal rights activists. Like this is in <laughs> yeah, the article and... And, but on, you know, this, this article says the company blames the collapse of its circus, not on the condemnation of animal rights activists, but on what is, but, uh, but on what it called an outdated business model. Ha ha ha. Yeah. Torturing animals turns out to be an outdated business model. Which, you know, the article then goes on to interview PETA and who, who just talks about it from an animal rights perspective. Yeah, but Which totally great. graciously, like yeah. such better communicators, like yeah. not, you know, just moving on. It's great. We're happy, you know. Yeah. Well, so that's good news. And I hope that people can just sort of take a moment to recognize that in a in a moment and an era in a lifetime where it is so hard to report on good news, especially when it comes to animals. There you go. That's some good news. So just take a moment to take it in. And another person who is very frequently focusing on optimism and positivity and good news is our guest today. So I think we should we should go to him. I do too. And I think I think it's particularly appropriate because also presenting media entertainment because his videos can be very entertaining, but about animals, but thinking about the 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 animals themselves, not using the animals for, for nefarious purposes. So I'm particularly excited that we get to do this interview today. David Castleman is a philanthropist and a lawyer and the founder of Ecoflix, a not-for-profit global media service streaming worldwide on all forms of media dedicated to saving animals and the planet. He is also the co-founder of the Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary and serves on various other boards, including the Whale Sanctuary Project and the Wolf Connection. And he will be joining Jasmine right after this. Abbott's Butcher is leading the next generation of plant-based meat by using real food ingredients to craft premium plant-based proteins that are flavorful, protein-packed, and super versatile. Abbott's Butcher is the only plant-based meat brand that is free of soy, gluten, preservatives, and canola oil. And they never include any added natural or artificial flavorings. Their meats are 
absolutely delicious and so easy to prepare. Even I was able to do it. And as you might know, I'm not the best cook in the world. I particularly enjoyed the chorizo, which we prepared alongside a bunch of vegetables as a sort of taco salad. It was so good and so easy. And I myself mostly eat gluten-free and mostly eat whole foods. And this fit right in. We also tried the incredible chopped chicken and the ground beef. And the ground beef, I added some vegan cheese and it kind of gave me like a hamburger helper feel. I loved it. So look for Abbott's Butcher Chorizo in Target stores or visit abbottsbutcher.com. And I'm going to spell that for you. That's A-B-B-O-T-S Butcher. Dot com. Again, it's abbotsbutcher.com. There's two Bs, one T. And that way you'll find a retailer near you. I love this and I know you will too. Welcome to our hen house, David. Thank you. Great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. I've been looking forward to this interview. I think what you do is unique and something that I haven't really seen out there in the animal advocacy sphere. So let's jump in. Tell us what EcoFlix is and what people should expect to find there. EcoFlix is the first not-for-profit streaming media service dedicated to animals on the planet. When I say nonprofit, I mean down the line. The money for subscriptions is all donated. All of the funding is donated. And basically, we're trying to find a better way to provide information, motivation, inspiration about the critical issues that affect us, particularly animals and the planet without lecturing, without beating people over the head, without making people feel bad. The goal is to inspire. Hopefully they'll follow our lead, learn from things that we learned about, that we pass along because they're so exciting to us, and get a following of people who are excited as we are to be the change, not talk about the change. We need to be the change. Oh my God, I have so many questions. You are definitely speaking my language. That is why we started our hen house. And I'm so passionate about media. So when I see other organizations and projects that are using media to embolden people to create change, I just get so excited. So real quick question, where is this available? And then we'll get into some of the actual issues you're covering. Great. Well, first of all, it's available at www.ecoflix.com. You can subscribe for a month for free to check it out. You just sign up and you can cancel at the end of the month if you don't absolutely love it. I won't personally call you and hate you for canceling. Um, <laughs> in fact, I won't have your number, so I couldn't anyway. But it's also available, obviously, if it's on the internet, it's on your laptops, your computers. But most importantly, you can have it on your TV. You can watch our original documentaries and things on television. Just And when you stop in the middle you can pick them up on your phone or anywhere else because it's seamless throughout the the various platforms so it's a streaming online service like any other it's worldwide and yeah we're very excited about it i love that and as you mentioned this is a viewer membership model so how do you use the membership fees and what do members get 
So members get access to the site and the ability to watch all the programming we create that we license and to interact. We love to hear from you. We have our TikTok and Instagram and you know other feeds, but the real key to this is there is nobody making money here. The only benefits are going to animals and the planet. I've been self-funding from the beginning. We're looking for investors or partners along the way. It would be great. Brand sponsors would be lovely. But what we're doing is not about money. The people who subscribe know should know that we have an outward-facing transparency policy. Everything we donate is on our annual report. And last year, we didn't have any money from anybody because we were building and just launching. And we still donated a bunch because I've been doing that for decades. It's, it's my passion and now my team's passion. And we have wonderful people all over the world working on it. So yes, the goal is to give back, to make a difference. And we have so many exciting things we're donating to I'd love to tell you about them, but the bottom line is there's a lot of them. Well, tell us about it. Tell us about some of the organizations you work with. We're partnering with Born Free, In Defense of Animals, Mercy for Animals, the Fund for Animals, IFAW, and many more, the Whale Sanctuary Project, the Wolf Connection. Um, oh, I'm going to forget somebody. They're going to be mad at me. Romanian Bear Sanctuary. There's just a lot. And just as an example of the kind of things that excite me, I learned about a very small group of people who are experts in rescuing lynx of all places in Russia. And there's no interest uh, in charities, particularly in Russia. And these two people, father and daughter, are the probably the world's experts in wild lynx. And they rescue the kittens after the mothers are shot. And there's no place for the, the babies other than on somebody's table, I suspect, which is why I gave the money they need to create a sanctuary where they are. Yeah, I know that you work with a multiplicity of organizations. You named some of them. I have some others pulled up in front of me. Conserve Congo in Africa. You've got Elephant Nature Park in Thailand. Whale Sanctuary Project in Nova Scotia. Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary. Mm. Uh, Liberty Bears Sanctuary in Romania. Mercy for Animals, you mentioned the Wolf Connection in LA, Orangutan Foundation International in Indonesia, Elephant Voices in California, and Malaysia Gibbon Rescue in Malaysia, and Wildlife SOS in India. Wow. I just wanted to get through the list because it's amazing. It's growing. It's growing. We're partnering with some ocean organizations in addition to the Whale Sanctuary Project, and there's many more. But the nice thing about our partnership with the NGOs is it's a complete one-way relationship. By that, I mean, we support the NGOs by putting their films, their projects on world you know, platforms. And then when members join, if they want to, they can select the NGO of their choice. And when they do that, we give a 10th of their donation funds directly to that nonprofit. So their members can join and their nonprofit gets the benefit of it. And the other nine-tenths, we donate to other causes. So it's all going to charity. It's just that we earmark it. So the NGOs have, it costs them nothing to join. 
They have a partnership where we publicize their works, which are fabulous. And of course, we check that. We want to be sure that we're partnering with fabulous organizations. And then we support them financially when members choose their organization to get some of their subscription dollars. So it's a win-win, and, and we hope to have more partnerships like we're already starting. I just want to go back to something that you just said. How do you vet the organizations you work with to make sure that they're doing the work that you support? Yeah, it's important. We are made up of people who are involved in organizations like these and others, many. I'm a member and a board member of several nonprofits. I've started nonprofits and charities like Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary. I'm partners in Elephant Nature Park in many respects. And um, we're forming a new sanctuary in Thailand together. And I'm one of many people in my organization who are doing these kind of things. And so we're aware of the difference between nonprofits that say they're nonprofit and then they pocket the money and the animals really don't see it or they use the animals as a means to attract people to send them money when the truth is the animals never see it. They just fund their organization that way. And people who are really truly doing something for animals. And to us, that's a bright, bright line. And so we are careful that when we are partnering with somebody, it's somebody either we already know or we have our members do a careful search or we ask questions, we talk to the people and we make sure that when we're partnering with somebody who we're going to be giving money to, we want to be sure it's going to the animals. Obviously, they have to pay for their overhead and things like that, but we want to make sure it's an organization worthy of attention because we don't want to commit other people to thinking they're good by us putting our brand on and publicizing what they do and then find out later that we're falsely representing what's going on. Totally. I mean, it's definitely not exactly the same thing, but when we've had sanctuary people on in the past, it's definitely been on our mind because I know that we need to make sure that the sanctuaries are legit. Since we all know that many are not, that can be tough, right? It's worse than tough. I'm a huge proponent of elephant welfare. And in Southeast Asia, particularly Thailand, elephant trekking is a huge issue. I was involved in the development of the movie Love and Bananas, which is all about stopping elephant trekking. And on the power of that film, Lech Chyler, my dear friend and partner in Thailand, was able to close 50 trekking camps to elephant trekking because the people learned for the first time something they didn't know from the film, which is trekking is horrible for the elephants. You have to brutalize the elephant in order to get them to allow you, and they continue to brutalize them. It's not just in the training phase. But the point of that is you can go to Thailand today. Places like the Four Seasons will tell you. It's, or at least they used to. I don't know if they do today, but they would tell you, oh, you know, this is an elephant sanctuary. We take care of our elephants. They're all rescued from terrible environments. And then you go out and they give you elephant rides, which is impossible at a sanctuary. If you are at a camp that allows people to ride elephants, by definition, it's not an elephant sanctuary. They have to abuse them repeatedly. If you could see the skull of a trekking elephant after they're dead, they have holes in their forehead from all the spike marks from the mahouts out of the vision of the person riding when they're stabbing the elephant to force them. And that's not the only place they stab them. So yeah, it's important to know the difference between a true sanctuary and 
even a trusted brand like Four Seasons, I think, was duped into thinking it's okay to have elephant trekking. It's not. Totally. Ugh, God, that's hard. Do you create all your own content or also share content created by your NGO partners and others? We do all of the above. First, we do create our own content. We have original shows, original documentaries. We'll be having podcasts of our own. We have a lot of things in the works, but currently online, what you would see on the channel are original documentaries and programs and interviews, and I think inspirational material of all kinds. Plus, we have licensed some film that we think is important and worth seeing. And then we also partner with everybody who wants to partner, just not just NGOs, to show films of importance. I just saw yesterday a film, I think it was may have been created by the UN, called DontChooseExtinction.com. It's like a two or three minute film. I commend it to everybody. It's not on Ecoflix, but I commend it for the same reasons we would want it on Ecoflix. And we're going to hopefully get it on Ecoflix. It's incredible. Watch it. It's two or three minutes. Don't choose extinction.com. It's the kind of thing we're trying to do with the power of film to convince people do the right thing. And it's inspirational, not beating you over the head, which I love. Yeah, and I love, too, that you mentioned you have regular shows in addition to documentaries. Can you tell us about about that? Yeah, we have several different ones. One is called On Safari with Nala, which is a little girl in Botswana, and she and her father go out and they find a species and they film a two- or three-minute episode of her explaining that species, all kinds of very cool things about the species. And... We have, I don't know, 35 or 40 episodes of those. And that's a lot of a lot of learning for children. And I might add, I learned something in almost every episode. So it's not just for children. We also have shows that we created. Uh, another one is called Going Wild with John and James. These are two safari guides who are very much animal friendly. And we have filmed safaris with them. And we keep them relatively short, 15 minutes average, because people don't have time anymore to watch a two-hour documentary, and they just don't sit through them. So we have content. We have no advertising on the site, so we can have content of any length. We're not satisfying anybody but the audience and ourselves. And so going wild with John and James is fun. These two guys are really a hoot, and they love what they do, and they take you out and show you the back view, if you will, of how safaris are made and them, you know, scouting sites and how they would, you know, get ready for guests and stuff and how they cook. And just, it's a fun show. More on the inspirational side, we have Niall McCann, Dr. Niall McCann interviewing. He's um, the head of a wonderful organization in Africa. They rescue failing parks, national parks. It's the National Park Rescue Service. And He's the head of that. But anyway, he's very knowledgeable and uh, he interviews inspirational people. And the goal is to help you see how a regular person, just like each of us, dedicated themselves and all of a sudden became a change maker. And the show is called Change Makers because of that. And you watch it and you can be inspired by the amazing things that people are doing that you never knew about. 
And there's another show we started called Trailblazers. And it's younger people, I would say, on their way to making Changemaker. They will become Changemakers as time passes. and They're doing amazing things as young people. And we have a lot of other interest in our documentaries, for example. Um, we focus on things. And they're shorter, too, an hour. We don't make them two hours or whatever because, again, we don't think people will watch them. So that's kind of the stuff we're, we're doing. I love it. I love the kids stuff too. I totally agree that, you know, kids stuff is for all ages. I always learn things when I'm, for whatever reason, come across kid created content or content that's created for kids. Do you believe that animals are the key to people appreciating the natural world and working to save the planet? I mean, I can't imagine you're going to say no, but I, <laughs> I, I would love your thoughts on that. Well, thanks. You know, it's fascinating because animals were obviously what drew me into the discussion. I love most animals. There are a few that either scare me to death, but I would want them to live. Right. Um, a few that it, I didn't understand why they have a place on this earth like mosquitoes. And then <laughs> as I started to learn more about the billions of years of evolution and how everything was forged in that fire cauldron, I mean, you either live or die because you have a place in an ecosystem. There are no outliers. Nature doesn't make mistakes. The stakes die. So there are no mistakes in nature. Everything has a purpose. And when you realize that and you start to look backwards and, and all the things that we have done to destroy biodiversity, it's, I hate people half the time. I mean, I just don't understand how we can be such a scourge on the earth and yet call ourselves the most intelligent creatures that ever existed. We're the first intelligent species of any kind to exterminate itself. How smart are we? So yes, animals are guileless. They are absolutely predictable, and we're part of the animal race, and we're the only part of the animal race that species that aren't predictable and that don't do what's expected of us. And so if you look up the chain, you know, if you talk about the cycle, you know, the atmosphere, hydraulic cycle, the soil fertility, and eventually biodiversity – the product of protecting our planet is biodiversity. And if we don't get with the program, we have very little time left. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because at our hen house, we try to be what we call indefatigably positive, no matter what. And I have to admit, it's getting harder and harder because of a lot of the things that you just mentioned, just in terms of, you know, you said sometimes I hate people. And of course, sometimes we all do. And sometimes we choose to see the good in people because we choose to have hope. Can you just speak to that a little bit? Like, how do you personally deal with that sort of push and pull of like, fury and active liberation and, and media making to change the world. I start with a mantra and it's the starfish story and it's simple little mantra, but to me it's important because I get to this point a lot, like you just noted. And it's apocryphal. It's about a little boy on a beach at low tide and there's starfish drying in the sand and the rocks at low tide. And he's walking around, picking them up and tossing them back in the water. And an old man comes up to him. He says, what are you doing, son? And he looks back. He says, I'm saving starfish. See, they're drying up here on the rocks and they won't all survive. And the man says, look down the beach. 
There are millions of them. You can't make a difference. And the little boy with the wisdom of youth turned around, ignored him completely, picked up a starfish, dropped it back in the water and turned back with a smile. And he said, it made a difference to that one. And I have to be satisfied with each starfish that we're able to put back in the water. I try to do my part as much as I can and everybody has to do their part. And sometimes it's just changing your attitude. That's a starfish. If you recognize that, you know, when I say, for example, I hate people, what I mean by that is I hate the behavior of people who literally don't understand what they're doing and they think they know everything. And it's people like the climate deniers who think they can just repetitively say that's all a hoax and it becomes a hoax. There's just so many times they can be wrong and we can all survive because the numbers add up. And so I do try to be inspirational in, in my own life. I try to make a difference, but I agree with you. It's hard. And occasionally you have to just pick yourself up. Like what is the matter with these people or the world, or sometimes even myself, what is the matter with you? Why did you just do that? You didn't, and you got to forgive yourself and you got to remember the starfish story and say one starfish at a time. You got to do better when you know better. And that's what, for example, Elephant Trekking, that was a one-time film. And on the strength of that, we've saved thousands of elephant suffering. And it's just impossible for me to imagine how we could have done that without that film. And, you know, Ashley Bell, who produced it and directed it and loved it from the beginning, and Lech Chyler, who's the star, I mean, they deserve all the credit. And I just think that that's an example of you you do better, and all of a sudden, it makes a difference. That's really beautifully said, and it speaks to so many things that I think we all struggle with, and it's a great reminder. I also think it's a great reminder that we can focus on not only the people who are doing great work when we get down, but also all of the organizations around the world, all of the people around the world. Like I find power and hope in that unification of like this global movement. I mean, look at the organizations you work with, they're all over the world and there is something very uh, grounding, especially when we're feeling kind of lost in the desperation. There's something very grounding about knowing, well, there's actually people all over who care too. They might not be making headlines all the time, but they're there and they are making a difference. Media is interesting because it's not always quantitative. You can't always say, well, as a result of the media we're making, all of this change has happened. Unlike, you know, some other campaigns in the animal protection movement, where you can very easily count numbers when you're making media, you don't know necessarily who's watching that documentary, who's listening to that podcast and what they go and do as a result of it. And yet you and I both focus on media making or creating hubs for media. Can you just talk a little bit about why this is something that called to you and why this is the result of your passion? Yeah, it's great. And it's funny, you're talking about the impact of media. I just talked to John and James before this podcast and they're in Botswana and they're busy doing their thing and they have no idea who's seen the show or what the reaction. And I said, well, I have to tell you, 
people love you guys, your characters, and on camera, your magic. And they were just thrilled because they have no idea. It's a perfect example of that. You're sort of, you can't get out of your own way. You can't see past your own nose because, well, as my parents would probably tell me, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and so it's always going to be that way. And you have to accept that there's a perspective that you can't have, and that's other people's. You can only have your perspective and try your best to learn from them their perspective. So, yes, in the case of Ecoflix, for me, the concept was born out of Love and Bananas, seeing the power of media, film in particular. And I agree that every form of media is important, and that's why we're trying to spread out and we're hoping to create Ecoflix magazine, Ecoflix publishing, podcasts, merchandise. You know, I think people would say that nature speaks to us in many ways, all the time, everywhere we go. And the question is not, is nature speaking to us, trying to teach us what we need to know? It's, are we listening? There's all kinds of music in the wind and the trees and the animals and every kind of beauty you see around you when you're in nature. And if you're not listening, it doesn't exist for you. If you're listening, you can hear it in a concrete jungle. In downtown New York, you can feel the rhythm of Africa. If you are ever in Africa, if you're fortunate enough to go there and be out in a place where you're literally part of the circle of life, your senses become more keen. Your appreciation of the importance of the kind of grass and how tall it is becomes the difference between living and dying because some predators hide in grass, some use speed. So short grass, you're looking for a different kind of predator. Everything changes when your perspective changes. And if you close your eyes and recognize that you're part of nature and film helps you do that, it transports you. If you can see yourself in the film, you can see yourself in nature because all these things were taken in the real world. We need to protect them. They're precious. They're dying. We need to be their voice. I love that. I love the idea of like, are we listening? And I love media being part of the answer for that. One of the most difficult things for anyone presenting information about animals is to find that balance between telling the truth about what is happening and not traumatizing people to the extent that they simply turn it off. This is kind of like one of the big questions, isn't it? How do you define those boundaries? It's really easy for me. My wife and I both are squeamish when it comes to animals being slaughtered or hurt in any way. And my natural reaction is if I have to turn away or I want to turn away or knowing my wife as well as I do, if, if Pam is going to watch it in days and weeks later, she'll still be worrying about it because it's so hard. You can't take it out of your brain. It's been bronzed into your brain. Then it's not something you should be seeing. And so on Ecoflix, for example, we either pixelate or cut out scenes. If it's a bad scene from our perspective, we will not show that kind of stuff. I call them animal snuff films. We're just not interested in having inspiration by trauma. And many of the successful organizations will try and expose you to those things because there is some value to traumatizing people to move them to action. 
I understand their point. They're not wrong that it is motivating. Unfortunately, in my opinion, it's motivating in a way that would make me shut down, not open up. And I think that's the difference. And so Ecoflix is designed to open people up, to make them smile, to make them learn and feel good about things that are out there. So we try to be expansive. We cover around the world stories and films. We've got things from Australia and places you don't necessarily always hear about. And we like trying to be not just inspirational, but far reaching. Yeah. I I get so frustrated when I go into my Instagram feed and I'm scrolling and then suddenly there's something completely horrifying in front of me. Like I can't unsee it. I just, the world is traumatizing enough. I'm happy to hear where you draw the lines. Your goals as you've mentioned, include not only informing people, but encouraging them to take action. How do you do that? Like what kind of action? It's really an interesting point. In years of working on things of my own, you can get very depressed by, as they say, hitting your head against the wall. But again, I've seen change and it comes from persistence and numbers, takes numbers. And the more of us who realize our voices are needed and move the needle a little bit. It is in motion. An object once in motion stays in motion. Well, an object in motion can include change in society. And I think there's so many changes in our lifetime. And sadly, today we're talking about possibly a a movement going backward in terms of the politics of the day, Supreme Court decision that's been leaked. And I I'd like to think that that will ultimately move us forward. It's such a shocking revelation that in this day and age, we could be in that place. But it's true of all things, not just animal activism. Tell us about your three priority pillars and why you have defined them as you have. Let's go through them one at a time. Which pillars are you talking about? Because we've got a lot of pillars well, why don't you tell me about like one that particularly speaks to you that you're most passionate about? Well, I'm most passionate about supporting nature, that nature is the key to all things people. And the reason that's true is because if you're purely a scientist and you're looking at it across the spectrum, there are climate and other important things that people could, should know. But Animals are the the gateway drug, if you will, to get into those other discussions. And so I prioritize animals because they're so innocent and they're so, I think, forced upon by people that if we can make change for animals, we are well down the right road. And pretty soon you'll realize that animals aren't just suffering because people take their pelts or eat them or treat them poorly or a million other things shoot them. They're also suffering from climate. They're also suffering from all of the other aspects of what we're doing to the world that redound on biodiversity of every kind, every place. Yeah. I don't know in what time you managed to do this, David, but you are also the co-founder of the Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary, and I believe a new sanctuary, the Eco Sanctuary Thailand. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Fill us in on their work. Yeah, well, Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary is over 20 years old now. And while I was practicing law, I had a partner in 
Thailand, not a legal partner, a friend partner, just a great guy and very powerful there. And he helped me because it was my passion, not because it was his, which was wonderful of him. His name is Mr. So Kong. And he helped me partner with the government to protect the million acres of jungle land. It was the last remaining acreage. It's since been eroded, but it's still a very large tract. And we rescue elephants and monkeys and gibbons. And example, there's a 20-acre pen with a very high fence that people can't get into. And the point of it is to rescue monkeys in particular, primates of all kinds, really. And we take care of if they have broken bones, if they're malnourished, whatever. We rescue them wherever we find them in you know, food markets, wherever they might be. And we put them in there and we feed them through a gate because they've decided this is their place. People aren't allowed anymore. And they know that they'll have food there and they can come and go because they can climb over the fence like it's not even there. And they go right up into the trees and pretty soon the wild ones learn that they can come in and they can get food and they intermix. And so the rescued primates join with the other wild ones and pretty soon they're coming and going and they're wild again. And so it's a beautiful 20 acre space and it's an example. And the same with um, elephants. When we can, we, we find them and rescue them. Um, the most notable rescue is of Kavan, who um, you may have read about and seen on television. Cher got involved in a rescue. It took five years and many different nonprofits all over the world to join forces and we were involved in that effort and they were successful in getting him out of Pakistan and flying him to Cambodia and we cleared the path for them in Cambodia and he's now living in the lap of luxury in his own sanctuary in a Cambodian forested jungle. So that's the kind of stuff we do there. In Thailand, Lek Chyler, who's just an unbelievable person, if people don't know about her, they ought to look her up. And by the way, you could see films about her both in television and theater. Also, we've done two films with her already. One is called Sanctuary, and it focuses on Elephant Nature Park. We have another one on Chimp Haven in Tennessee. It's another one of our partners, NGO partners. But Sanctuary is focused on good sanctuaries. That's the whole point of it. We hope to make many more shows. And the one about Elephant Nature Park, really tells you everything you need to know about Elephant Nature Park. It's They rescue every kind of animal, and Lek is such an inspirational figure. I mean, she's kind of a muse as far as I'm concerned. I think it, she just can't do anything wrong. She's probably the single most perfect human I know on the earth. Just being around her is so inspiring, and a lot of what I've done is literally inspired by things I've learned from her. And she has a tremendous following around the world. You can see her on Instagram and TikTok and all the elephant stuff on ours is usually from Elephant Nature Park because she shares it with us. And her whole point is that we need to do everything we can do for animals. And so she doesn't take anything for herself. I mean, literally the local people make her clothes. She doesn't even buy things. She literally gives everything of herself to animals. And so she has partnered with me. It was a great gift. And she runs a 
Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary for me. She and her husband, Derek Thompson, go back and forth from Thailand to run Cambodia Wildlife Sanctuary while also running Elephant Nature Park in Chiang Mai. And there's just no space for all the elephants anymore. So we're acquiring a large sanctuary just fairly close to Elephant Nature Park to then have the room to really do more and rescue more elephants. So it's been a long time process to acquire that land and we got money sitting aside waiting to fund it. That is extraordinary. Wow. I just have a couple more questions, David, before our flock bonus content, which I hope you will stick around and and chat with me. So you work with organizations all over the world. What would you say are the global trends in wildlife conservation? Well, I think ecosystems are, I think, more appreciated now than they used to be. People would call a zoo a sanctuary. It is not. If the animals can't live close to a natural wild existence, and any captive animal is going to have a hard time going back into the wild, some have a better chance than others. But in general, if you have a sanctuary, you're talking about hopefully the next best thing to being wild. And ecosystems are the key because they exist for a reason. They are the perfect way for all these species to relate to each other from bacteria that, you know, we are busy trying to kill bacteria in our lives. People don't even realize if they didn't have millions, trillions of bacteria inside of us, we couldn't even digest our food. And if we didn't have bacteria in the soil to break down dead and rotting plants and animals and other things and absorb those nutrients and feed them through a fungal network to trees and other plants and things, and the systems wouldn't work. And so we are, as a people, so ignorant of all that works around us. We're just busy breaking into and destroying these connections. I think I got off on a rant and lost the question, but I really feel like it's important for us to know who we are in this ecosystem. We aren't gods. If anything, we're the exact opposite. I think you did touch on the answer. I was asking about the global trends in wildlife conservation and... Ecosystem restoration. It is, we're starting a whole new channel based on the work of a, a gentleman named John D. Liu, L-I-U. You can look him up. He's truly remarkable. And we're calling it Restoration of Ecosystems, the Great Work of Our Time. And it is the great work of our time. We have degraded land everywhere. And if we can put our ecosystems back, and it can be done, watch his films. We have one on Ecoflix now. We have four, actually, of John Liu's. One of them is very short. It's called Real Wealth. And it's just a snippet of his brilliance. But basically... What he's explaining is what we call wealth, you know, cars and airplanes and money, is a fiction. It has no real wealth. In fact, all these things turn into garbage that degrades the earth. Every old airplane is trash. Every old car, watch, money, none of it 
as intrinsic value. And it is at best a derivative of all of our natural ecosystems. We have air, we have water, we have fertile soil, we have biodiversity because of the balance of our ecosystems. It is the rich product of those things that allows us to make cars and money and trains and computers. And if we don't get our priorities right and recognize that the value, the renewable perpetual value is in ecosystems, not in the what we call wealth, we are doomed. We need to reverse our priorities. And his shows, we have a series of them talk about how to restore fallow ecosystems. They're incredible. They're inspirational. It's information people need to know. And we're going to be showing hundreds of those films on Ecoflix. Wow, that is so important. And I'm looking forward to watching that. What about climate? Are you seeing it have an impact on the animals and the people you're working with? Well, it affects everybody. Uh, There's no question. And of course, where you are located makes a big difference. And it goes back to earth restoration. For example, we have floods and we have fires. Why is that? What's climate got to do with that? It always rained. There were always fires. And the answer is we don't have the resilience that the system was designed for. There were always fires and floods. But when you have washed out all the roots and the soil systems and the means to absorb the water and filter it and put it into natural streams and outlets. And all you have now is eroded earth. Of course, you're going to have floods. There's nothing to stop the floods. Mangrove forests that protect large ocean waves when they come in and crash against the shore are wiped out. Well, of course, you're going to have tidal impacts and cities being washed off the face of the earth. And of course, trees, where will we begin with trees? We just did a documentary, as you mentioned early on, about trees called The Last Stand. And it talks about how vital they are to our air and to to so many things. It's not just air. I think The Last Stand is something people really should see. And it's a good example of kind of our emphasis on things you should know, but you don't. I learn every day from EcoFlix. No reason why you can't, too. Well, please tell our listeners where they can find you online and how they can support your efforts. That's awesome. It's again, www.ecoflix.com or the easy way is just Google Ecoflix, E-C-O-F-L-I-X. It'll take you to the channel. And as I say, you can join free for a month. And at the end of the month, if you wish, cancel. I hope you'll be hooked. Your subscription dollars are tax deductible in the US. We're forming in the UK as well a nonprofit and people can donate. Uh, We're a 501c3 here in the U.S. Brand partners can join with us. We hope to do uh, amazing work for a long time. But as I say, I'm self-funding for now. And as soon as we get, I think, long-term support, we'll be able to do more and do better, including support more sanctuaries and nonprofits and great causes around the world. So we hope to see everybody. And if there's a suggestion that people have for us, they can reach us online, ecoflix.com. Amazing. David, thank you so much for all that you're doing to change the world for animals. This has been 
an insightful and inspiring chat. And I'm looking forward to talking a little bit more in a few minutes on our bonus. And I will keep an eye on the work that you're doing because it sounds like you're not only doing big things, but you're at the precipice of doing even bigger things. So good luck. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Thank you to your listeners as well. If you like what you're listening to, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a minute out of your day today to leave us a friendly review. You can do it on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or Stitcher or on Facebook or wherever you listen to podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. The more we get out there, the more our hen house will be in front of people's eyeballs when they're putting in search terms in their podcasts and the more we could join forces together to elevate the voices of the animals and change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxiety surprising. Our first story is from, it's, this is reporting about anxieties rising, not an anxieties rising piece itself. The FDA is coming for your almond milk. This is by Tom Philpott from Mother Jones and He starts off by saying, when you drop a box of almond milk into your shopping cart or order an oat milk latte, are you being bamboozled? That's the contention of Big Dairy, which has been pressing its friends in Congress and the U.S. Food and Drug Administration to reserve the name, quote, milk, for fluids extracted from the mammary glands of animals. The FDA, which regulates food labeling, appears poised to grant the industry its wish. This is very disappointing news. I thought this issue had kind of died, at least when it came to the word milk. But apparently it's just been brewing and and apparently this could go the, the wrong way. As the subtitle of this article says, really, this is what the government cares about right now? Well, and you know why they care about it. They care about it because of uh, they care about the dairy industry because uh, it's all just <laughs> one big club. So apparently Commissioner of the FDA, Robert Califf, indicated in testimony before the Senate that he agreed with the dairy industry's line. Consumers aren't, quote, very equipped to deal with what's the nutritional value of non-dairy milk alternatives, unquote. Oh, brother. Oh, brother. We're moving along quickly and it's a priority to get this done. So I can assure you it will get done. He also puts this in the context of a lot of comments by, uh, you know, who's for it and who's against it. It's like dairy state senators are for it. Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin, Mike Crapo from Idaho. Cory Booker, of course, is against it and points out that the FDA has been under so much criticism of late because it isn't it doesn't it really neglects the food part of its mandate. It's food and drug and it really focuses on drugs. So this they've apparently decided to uh, rally around the food side by making uh, almond milk, not call itself milk, call itself almond beverage. Uh, The article also points out that a 2020 study by USDA researchers found that the, quote, increase in sales over 2013 to 2017 of plant-based options is one-fifth the size of the decrease in Americans' purchases of cow's milk, which is a really interesting fact and and kind of, uh, you know, I wouldn't say as, as this as this writer does, that this belies the idea that the growth of the plant-based milks have had anything to do with the decline of cow-based milk. But certainly cow-based milk is declining regardless. And the only, you know, it's propped up by a mil- in a million different ways. He also points out that nor is there evidence that America's turn away from milk as a beverage has exacted negative nutritional consequences, 
Dietary intake of calcium, the product's signature nutrient, steadily increased for all age groups between 1994 and 2010, a USDA study found. It's a really interesting fact, isn't it? Even as per capita milk consumption dwindled. Similarly, cow milk offers multiple times the protein of most of its plant-based rivals, but as we've turned away from it, signs of a protein deficiency in our diets have not developed. Yeah, if there's one thing we don't need, it's more protein, especially animal protein. But, you know, the FDA, uh, that's what they're going to protect us against. They're going to protect us against uh, our, our lack of ability to understand that almond milk is not cow milk. Because we're apparently very, very stupid. All right. A related article from Dairy Herd. Dairy, quote unquote, dairy farms, he's, he put it in quotes, are going away. Well, that sounds like good news, doesn't it? Well, don't hold your breath. It's an article by Maureen Hansen. Apparently, this is, she's reporting on this uh, speech by Marin Bozik, who's the assistant professor in dairy foods marketing economics at the University of Minnesota. He shared his thoughts on the future of the dairy industry with the audience of the recent 2022 annual conference of the professional dairy producers of Wisconsin. Sounds like a fun group, doesn't it? <laughs> and he's suggesting, I mean, they all know that that. Nobody drinks milk anymore. Well, hardly anybody drinks milk anymore. So what he decided to do was to point out a shift from traditional dairy farms, whose incomes were based almost exclusively on milk and meat, to enterprises with a multitude of revenue streams. And uh, I'm, I'm really sorry to have to say this, but these are his suggestions. Value-added or multi-attribute milk, i.e. milk. <laughs> milk with something added to it. Beef animals. Carbon credits, i.e., get the get the, uh, um, the methane. Uh, is that what he's referring to? Fertilizer. They're going to grow these cows for their poop. What? Renewable natural gas. Oh, I guess that would be getting the um, you know the methane. I love the term renewable. Like we shouldn't be producing methane, folks. That's methane is bad. Even if you use it, it's bad. Electricity. I don't know what. That's what that's referring to. This is a good one. Embryos. Selling the embryos, the cow embryos, I don't know. And agritourism. Doesn't it sound like just the kind of place, you know, who needs to go to the Bahamas? You can go to a dairy farm. All right, from drovers.com. European Union considers applying EU standards on all agricultural imports. Well, this must have the industry in a fit. And according to this, it definitely does. The U.S. Meat Export Federation and Senior Director of Export Services, Cheyenne McIndefer, expressed their opposition of the idea. I can imagine there's a lot of opposition. McIndefer says, quote, under the World Trade Organization, applying EU standards or regulations to an importing country just, just for the sake of applying them. <laughs> That's the reason they're doing it. Just, I don't know, just for the hell of it. <laughs> Why not? doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they would like these standards applied to the food that's imported or that they want, you know, an even playing field for their own producers. No, they're just, it's just for the hell of it. Without very clear defined human or animal health risks is not compliant. We, referring to the U.S., have some of the highest animal welfare standards in the world, but that's really dictated by voluntary and commercial practices at the farm level as well as third-party and regulatory standards at the slaughter plant level. Uh, what? <laughs> what? 
Oh my God. So apparently the EU, which has, you know, doesn't have great animal welfare standards, but better than ours uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and other standards as well, uh, environmental as well. But, you know, they're talking about animal welfare standards here. They're better than ours. So apparently they're just applying those standards for the hell of it. And I guess they think that we might have trouble meeting them because we have these really, really high animal welfare standards, but, you know, they're voluntary. So I guess it would be hard to prove it. Yeah, I guess it would. Oh, my God. As well as third party and regulatory standards at the slaughter plant level. Yeah, like not applying um, not applying any slaughter uh, regulations to chickens. Is that what you mean? Oh, unbelievable. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. Well, that's it for this week's show. As always, if you like the podcast and if you're able, we invite you to join the flock at ourhenhouse.org slash donate for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you can make whatever donation you're comfortable with. Another way to support us is to leave us a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or like us on Facebook. You could also leave us a review there or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, and to Jen Riley for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, Thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast and to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Vicki Bichler for her membership and administrative help. We'd also like to give a shout out to the amazing Veronica Kalinska, who designed our brand new logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode, so don't forget to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for tuning in. Hold up. 